This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Hees. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, and we have another great episode here for you. Today, we have Jeff Lindsay on from the Lindsay Way. Jeff has also been on uh, a few of the Drury shows uh, with Mark and Terry. Uh, Dream Season was one of the main ones. I think he's been on a couple other ones as well. Uh, I know he's an Iowa resident and used to be uh, neighbors with the Drury's. So we have lots of good stuff to talk about, and Jeff is quite the deer hunting fool. I mean, this guy and his dad, the Lindsay's, have their own TV show called The Lindsay Way, and we like to hear how they do it their way and how they go after these big mature bucks work their habitat, work their farm in a way that is advantageous when hunting them. So a couple of things we covered with Jeff today. We cover uh, deer bedding in, in the CRP versus the timber. We cover winter cover versus summer cover, some camera surveys, um, how to come up with a new habitat plan for your property, early and late season, the best time to uh, kill a big buck, how to keep stress and intrusion uh, down for these whitetail using uh, Toyota trucks instead of quads and ATVs. I talk about sanctuaries and even just favorite tree. So guys, thanks so much for tuning in today for this episode. You're not going to want to miss it. Jeff Lindsay from the Lindsay Way. Now I want to let you all know we have some brand new hats that have arrived. They're up at thehabitatpodcast.com along with all of our episodes and other gear at HabitatPodcast.com. I've actually put a link in the show notes to this episode, so no matter where you listen to the show, you should be able to hit the link directly to the website and go check out our cool gear on there. These new hats are uh, some sweet patch hats, and I like them a lot. I've been wearing mine for the last week or so. 
So be sure to check us out on HabitatPodcast.com and help support if you can. Now, I want to talk about 5-2 Outdoors. Dale Wallace, the owner, that's a, a friend of mine. They're a partner of the show here. They carry all Lazy Man blinds at his southern Michigan location. He is within driving distance of Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, Illinois, Tennessee, where he's at. I mean, if you draw a circle around 5-2 Outdoors, he's in a pretty centrally located area. Uh, I urge you to check him out at 5-2Outdoors.com. I know he also has Packer Max Cultipackers there, and uh, is just a, a great deer hunting guy. He has a, a nice property he hunts on there as well. Um, just a really nice guy, knows his habitat, and I love working with him. Be sure to check out Dale at 5-2 Outdoors. That is 5-F-I-V-E, the number 2, Outdoors.com. Next, let's check in with our friends at the Habitat Hook, Nick Nation. Has been pumping out these hooks all winter long here for our listeners. Be sure to mention the Habitat Podcast, and you will get, uh, first of all, you get free sales tax on anything you buy with 5-2 Outdoors. I wanted to make, mention that. But also, Nick will hook you up over at the Habitat Hook. I know I was out using my hook uh, a little earlier this month and totally cleared out an area, hinge cut an area, expanding a food plot and creating a new bedding and transition zone. There's a video on the Habitat Podcast Facebook and YouTube launching very soon, probably this weekend. So stay tuned for that. You can see the hook, and you can see the work that you can get done with that hook. I would think it's probably the best tool for TSI that I have besides my chainsaw. So guys, check him out at HabitatHook.com or NationsCreations.net. All right, and before we get into the episode, I'm going to have a little excerpt here from Charlie Morse at Morse Nurseries. You can buy all your habitat trees and shrubs at morsenursery.com. Check out Charlie on his Three Times the Charm Apple Tree Package. I would like to thank the rest of our sponsors. We have Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, the HuntWise app, Packer Max Cult of Packers, Killer Food Plots, and like we said, Morris Nursery. After this, guys, let's get Jeff Lindsay from the Lindsay Way and get right into it. Hello, this is Charlie Morris from Morris Nursery, and today I'd like to take a minute and talk about uh, one of our plants that we offer, um, and we call it the Three Times a Charm Package. Uh, it's an apple uh, package that includes a variety of apples that are some are early drop, some are mid drop, and some are late drop. And all the decisions that are kind of tough for a lot of people, getting the right trees that cross-pollinate with each other so that they can get good fruit sets are all made for you. And these packages will include, you know, the pollinators and the different drop dates. And you can look this package up on morsenursery.com, and it's called Three Times a Charm. All right, everybody, we are back. Another episode of the Habitat Podcast. We have my trusty co-host, Brian Hallboy, on the line. And a very special guest tonight, Jeff Lindsay from Iowa. How you doing, Jeff? I'm doing great. How you guys doing? Doing good. Doing great, Jeff. Thanks for joining How's us the tonight. There? Oh, well, I don't know about you, Brian, but we're supposed to get hit with a, a pretty big storm, snowstorm tonight. Um, it hasn't hit yet. How about you, Brian? Yeah, it's been in the 
50s, surprisingly, here in the last couple of days. But it's looking like tomorrow or the next day we're going to get some cold weather rolling back in. Okay. How about you, Jeff? How's it down there? Yeah. Same thing, man. It's been a, it's been a, a tough few weeks here as far as being pretty cold. But the snow all melted this weekend when I was out of town in Indiana. And uh, But they're talking about it again tonight. Or I don't know if it's going to happen, but, but we'll see. But um, looks like we're in for some decent weather the next couple of weeks. So we're going to do some shed hunting. Attaboy. Yeah, it's about that time. I think, uh, Brian, you were talking about heading down to southern Illinois for a shed hunt. You still doing that? Yeah, I've been talking to Jordan about putting something together. We're trying to make the details work out here, but hopefully next week or so. Nice, nice. Have they uh, started dropping for you, Jeff? Have you seen any trail cam pictures or anything? Yeah, it's, you know, I don't, we're, we're a little past 50-50. We're, you know, it was a, a very cold November, mild December, pretty mild January, and and then kind of getting to February, it wasn't so it, it was. It got back to being true winter, so it, it, we haven't had that brutal little winter. Um, so a lot of them are still carrying, but I don't have a problem with that because I want our deer stress free. So not a problem. But and we typically, um, you know, we kind of got to beat the shed poachers to the easy ones. We we kind of keep them at bay for the most part, but unfortunately, they will always exist. But we we would love to just say, hey, let's let's just wait till you know end of March, go in there. Before it gives us a couple of weeks before green up, and then you know just you know walk our legs off and find them all. But but we yeah. we've been picking up some of the easy ones as we go, and then here in the next week or two we'll have some some buddies over and we'll have a, a big you know couple of days at it. Oh man, that sounds terrible. No fun. It is. It is it's <laughs> terrible. We, we it's all day deal. We'll, we'll go get hot dogs, make campfires, and wherever we're at, we'll just set up camp. So it's it's pretty cool. It's it's something we look forward to every year. I mean it's. It's, I'm not going to say it's, you know, picking up a shed's more fun than killing a deer, but it's it's dang close, at least for us. Very nice. Yeah, we are, we're still finding them up here in Michigan. By the time they drop, there's a, well, first of all, there's the, the age class of deer is so young that it's harder to find anything nice. And what you do find that, you know, they're either smaller or the squirrels and coons have already got to them a little bit or, or something. So it's. It's actually pretty tough up here, but, uh, you know, Brian, you do much shed hunting down in PA. You guys do any good over there? Yeah, we do okay. Same thing. We don't have the upper age class, but uh, in the special regulation area where I'm at outside of Pittsburgh, we have a lot more mature bucks than most places, so we do okay. Okay. Okay, nice. Yeah, I know uh, when you do find when I found them out of state before, it is pretty darn cool, so... I wish you guys right. like uh, starting that out. Now, we normally start these podcasts out with, you know, we want to hear about who Jeff Lindsay is. I mean, I know who you are. I've been following you for probably over a decade. Brian's in the same boat, you know, back to the Drury days and and even, you know, way way back when. Um, but we want to hear about, you know, who you are, where you're from, what you do for a living, maybe where you're at in Iowa, that type of thing, if you don't mind. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well... You know, I grew up in the South. You know, it's hard to get away from this accent. I'll, I'll carry that to my grave, you know. So, <laughs> grew up in the South. Grew up in middle Georgia. Um, you know, gun hunting with my dad and grandpa. We had a hunting club down there. Um, 900 acres, and we had 30-something members. It was it was intense, <laughs> you know. Um, 
that's how I grew up. And most of the guys were weekend warriors. I kind of was. I didn't really care a ton about it. Um, I was 10 years old. I killed my first deer. Uh, shot my first deer with a bow when I was 12. But somewhere around that age 12, I, I just fell into it bad. I don't know what it was. I just got where I really started loving it. Um, I, anything to do with hunting, I was ate up with it. Um, the land that we hunted at that time well, it was a piece we had behind our house, a couple hundred acres. And, you know, literally the biggest deer we had to hunt was, you know, probably a, you know, a deer that would barely break 100 inches. We just didn't have any big deer back then. Or if we did, we didn't know about them. That was kind of before trail cams, and we didn't really know they existed per se. And we sure didn't find the sheds, and we sure didn't ever see them. Um, but I, I grew up hunting, you know, it's, you could say where we started hunting at was almost like public land. I mean, there, there's places now where I think public land would be easier than what we grew up hunting. But that's where we learned how to do it. And uh, about 20 years ago, 18, 20 years ago, uh, I guess let me back up a little before that. So I first went to Iowa, you know, as a non-resident. Um, gosh, it was 20-something years ago, I guess, and and fell in love my first morning ever. You, you know, you hear all this stuff about how great, Iowa is, you read all these magazines, I still to this day have a North American whitetail collection, you know, that probably rivals anybody's in the nation, but I had every single magazine, I read it all, and that was really the only true magazine for, you know, big buck hunters back then, of course I wasn't a big buck, I didn't have, I wasn't a big buck hunter, I was just a big buck enthusiast, and I would read everything, and, and I couldn't apply it to pine trees, you know, all we had down in the south was pine trees, you know, flat topo. And then when I got to Iowa, I'm like, okay, here's a pinch point, you know, here's a ridge, here's an inside corner. So I'm sitting there my first morning ever in Iowa, and I jumped this deer going in. I ran him out of the clover field. I was walking in, had no idea where I was going, never been to this really spot in my life. And I go down there, they had a climber on a tree. I climb up in it. The buck that I ran out of the field comes back by, head down. 156-inch deer, I think, three- or four-year-old looking back, you know, probably four. I shoot him, hit him, in the, hit him a touchback um, in the liver, decided to give him a while. And as I'm sitting there waiting on the, my dad and the other guy who took us up there, there's like this 160, 170-inch deer, and that's just in my mind's eye from what I remember. Wind at his back comes walking by like 30 yards from me, and I'm like, oh, my God, everything I've always read about is – is happening right here, you know, this is unbelievable, and I can honestly say that's probably one of the better mornings I've ever had in Iowa, it just so happened to be my first morning ever on that particular farm I was hunting, the guy, it was an old farmer, he's still alive, and uh, his name Fred Duvall, and he did kind of just like pay hunts, you'd go in there and hunt for, you know, five days, you paid him so much for the week, and it's kind of a trespass fee, but the one guy I'd been going with up there, he had a place up there, so we, we stayed with him, and he kind of showed us around and fell in love with Iowa. And then, you know, a few years, two or three years went down the road. We found a piece. Um, we bought it, and that's when we made the decision. You know, here I am uh, out of college, and I said, Let, let's let's go for it. You know, we, we decided to move up there. We chased our dreams. We chased the, the big bucks, if you will, and um, we have been up there ever since. And Wow. You know, really enjoying it, loving it, and uh, we had the one farm, and we got moved. We had the one farm for a few years. Um, end up meeting Mark Drury. He he had a farm for sale. My dad had some other 
things he was kind of semi-retiring and, and kind of cashed in some chips, sold some farms around, um, or shoveled some farms around, I guess you'd say, that, that he had. And we ended up buying part of Mark Drury's farm, and we just became friends with him, him and we kept adding to it. And, and on that farm, we, we, we still have it today. And, uh, you know, that's where we first met Mark. He was over at the house one day, and he said, man, you know, we filmed too. At that point, I'd been doing a lot of filming for turkey hunts and a few deer hunts, nothing major, but, but we were on that new area and we were pumped about it. So we were taking a couple of our buddies, camera guys, you know, just filming and, um, ended up getting some, some really good footage and marks over our house one day and we're showing it to him. Like, we killed like three bucks and a few days over decoys. And he's like, man, that's, that's awesome. He's like, you guys want to come on board? We'll send you bows, the whole shebang. And it was like, heck wow. yeah, that sounds good to us. And, you know, so we did we did that. We ended up doing dream season uh, pretty much up until we left to those guys. And, you know, it was it was a mutual deal that we, we just thought it was time to go out and do our own, kind of incorporate our family. You know, at that point, I was married. and um, You know, my brother-in-law liked to hunt. And, and so we said, we just want to kind of do our own thing. And, and we're still great friends to this day. We're, if we're probably closer with them now, not being, you know, kind of, on the team and more like in a work environment and it's yep. just kind of strictly friends if that makes sense so sure that that's kind of what led to it and then we said hey let's start the, the Lindsay way you know we went back and forth with names logos ideas everything and we settled on that and we said hey let's just try to you know show people our way it's definitely not the only way and it's not the best way but it's our way and you know god family friends that's what we believe or god family dear <laughs> <laughs> is what we believe in. That was a real tree one, but uh, but God Family Deer is what kind of what we believe in, and and in that order, and 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 we've just tried to pretty much build a show around it, try to tell the story of, you know, the stories behind the bucks we hunt. That's awesome, man. That's uh, and you're doing a good job at it so far. So for anybody who who doesn't know the the Lindsay Way, is uh, Jeff and, and his dad's show and their family show. Now. I have a few questions for you about your, your background there. When did you move to Iowa? How old were you? Oh, me. Let's see. You tested my memory. Ballpark. Early 20s. Early wow, 20s. I young can't buck. remember the exact date. You know, and I'm, I'm 39 now. I'll be 40 this year. So uh, I've been doing it probably close to half my life. Yeah. Oh, no. I mean, just there. getting out there at, at early 20s. I mean, you're, you're still a kid, man. That's crazy. Yeah, I was, you know, and I, um, I, you know, I'm in the construction business. I worked for my dad growing up. He was, okay. he was a contractor, built houses. That's kind of what I started doing. I, I got out of school and I was working for him, and and then he kind of seen the everything coming. He kind of, you know, semi-retired. I kind of started my own thing, and still to this day, I, I have a I have a home building company that oh uh, nice that operates in a couple of different states. So that's kind of. That kind of what fuels the habit, you know, or pays for the habit, because I, I definitely got a, I, I don't want to just say a deer hunting problem, but I, I got where I like to, um, you know, collect farms that, that are good deals, and I can kind of justify them. I do, we do buy and sell some, but, it, you know, not, I don't do as much selling. I buy them and get attached to them, and, <laughs> uh, one of those try to improve them and make them better for the next guy. No, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm. I'm envious. That's awesome. I mean, I but I also can agree and and can see how you could get you know 
for a lack of a better term, you know, passionate, obsessed about about this. I mean, Brian and I are the, are the same way, even if it's to our fault. I mean, it's uh, it's all we think about, you know. I get it. Right, it's a lifestyle, you know, raising my kid now, and they're like, well, is he going to hunt? Or, you know, I have people ask me that. I'm like, you know, look, when I was five years old, I mean, I, I didn't, my dad went out hunting on the weekends or something. That's about all I knew. But, you know, my kid, Cash, I mean, that's we're living that stuff almost every day, you know, especially with the Lindsay Way and, you know, living on the farm and all. So, I mean, that's all he knows. So, of course he hunts, you know. That's that's like going to school, you know, or, or reading a book, riding his bike. I mean, hunting, that's just the way of life for for him and us now. So, a lot's changed. Now, in your, in your season intro to season four of the show, how you how you bounce from, you know, you in the tree pulling up your binos to him with his hunting action figure pulling up the binos and how you kind of play off each other through that whole intro. That's dynamite, man. That's awesome. How'd you guys come yeah, up with cool. that idea? How'd we come up with it? Yeah, that was, that's an awesome idea. Yeah, believe it or not, uh, that was my dad's idea. He was watching a, a music video on, on YouTube, and he, I can't, that's where he gets his inspiration, I guess. Like, <laughs> check this out. It's like this. It was going back and forth, this kid with this little toy car and, um, you know, to a race car, and he's like, man, there's there's something in here somewhere, uh, you know, with us hunting and cash, because he, he was even so passionate about it. I think he was three years old at the time we filmed that, <clears throat> and... So we just kind of rolled with it, and it took off. And guys, the Hartland Bowhunter guy that was kind of doing a lot of the filming on that, then Brian Dried, and he just uh, he kind of went with it. He had a lot of vision. He's very creative, and, and came up with that. And it was it was so powerful that we we ran it two years in a row. We, we got this time last year. It's like, man, how are we going to top that? And I was like, well, honestly, I don't think we can. Let's, let's yeah. run it again, you know, and it'll save us a little a little time and effort just because we, we don't have to go try to refilm that and come up with something else. I said, you know, honestly, I don't think we can beat it. Let's, let's, let's run it again. And I'd love to run it again this year, but you know, it's cash is getting a, a good bit different and we just, we got to kind of keep it a little relative. So we actually were had a phone call about that today, trying to, trying to spawn our new, uh, our new intro and, and finalize it. Well, you're, you're doing good so far. I appreciate the, the background there and and your show i uh i always wanted to wanted to ask you your your logo with the star it's uh it's different and i like it because it's different it sticks out what did how did you come up with that the the star with the, the deer and your last name and, and the show show title in with that well we're, we're we always called ourselves the deer mafia you know back when we were kids you know okay. like, that's what we are the deer mafia you know and i was like we're we're pirates, we're, we're deer ninjas, whatever you want to call it. And then when it comes time to name the show, everybody's like, no, that's, that's terrible. That's not going to work. So we <laughs> kind of got our dream shot down. But but about that time, five years ago, you know, the, the star is just a, you know, from, from Texas to, um, you know, there was a rock star. Um, there was a big company called Rockstar Grills. They made, you know, t- wheels and everything. And I was like, man, if we can incorporate that star somehow, you know, I'm all about branding. You know, I got a few different businesses, and um, I'll say a few, a couple different businesses, but it's all about branding. You know, it always comes back to that. I said, man, what you know, what better way could you uh, um, just brand something than, than through a star? You know, it's recognizable. And then I had a guy come up show to me this week, and he's like, man, that's the that's the best best logo in the business. I was like, well, why do you say that? He's like, because it 
it sticks out and you can always remember it. You always see it. I said, well, that's a good point. That was our, that was our, our goal in the beginning. But, you know, I, I don't have a, I wish I had a, a meaning for the star. You know, I've had some people say the star of David, stuff right. like that. But, you know, honestly, that's not why we did it. It just, we thought it looked cool and went with it. It does. It, it, it morphed into that, though. There was a lot of, uh, you know, uh, prototypes or, or, or sketches to get there. Now, Jeff, you uh, mentioned about growing up in Georgia and, and not having the biggest bucks. I just have one question before we moved on to the habitat stuff. What's going on outside of Atlanta? Some of those monsters those guys are killing down there. Man, I don't know. Those deer aren't like that where we're, we're at. But, you know, those guys do a great job. of. Uh, they, they've always, you know, those bow zones have, have always killed big deer. They've always killed the biggest deer in the state. And, and what that tells me and what that's always told me is, you know, people are people have always said, ah, oh, we don't have like deer like that in the south or we don't have like deer like that on the east coast. The truth of the matter is if a deer gets some age on him, yeah, they're not all going to be rock stars, but if a deer gets some age on him, if he gets that five, six, seven years old, and he's going to – some of them are going to be just giants. Some of them are going to be giants that would rival anything in the Midwest or, or, or something like that. So, you know, you get these counties around metro Atlanta, the, the Cab, Cobb, Fulton, all this stuff. People have always killed big deer. And, uh, you know, those guys over at Seek One, they're doing a great job of, of, of telling the stories, which I commend them for doing that because most of those spots they got are – you know, stuff they've got knocking on somebody's door. You know, anybody can get it. So they they put themselves out there on that. Um, but you know, there's always been been big deer in, in in the Atlanta area like that. These guys are just taking it to a different level. Yeah, they kind of shot themselves in the foot. It was great that they brought us the story, but I know they're fighting a lot of pressure now, trying to keep that permission on a lot of those properties. Right. Yeah, and that's something. But you know, it's a big area. You know, you take those. Those handful of counties that are, are, are bow only there, and they'll they'll always have some big deer. But you know, you just got to get that age on them, and you know, you and and they, you know, they got their net casting a lot of different stuff. Or most of those people that hunt up there, most of those guys aren't hunting a five or ten acre tract. You know, they may be hunting a few buddies' backyards or a couple of different properties. So if you can get enough areas and you know how to go about getting big deer on camera, you know, you can especially in the summertime. You, you can have it where you can hunt some deer like that. But don't get me wrong, I am them. It's just something that I um, I wish I had deer like that on, you know, on the farms we hunt in Georgia. Yeah, it's pretty pretty special and pretty impressive, some of the bucks they're knocking down. And I, Absolutely. I, remember, I remember reading an article quite a few years back. That I remember they were talking about, you know, nobody could grow a booner in Georgia. And I, I can't remember the fellow's name, but he ended up getting a farm. And setting up, it was a pretty good sized farm, and uh, it took him quite a few years, maybe even a decade or so. But I remember when he shot his first booner on there and sort of proved everybody wrong, kind of like you. Right? Were. Yeah, that was probably Jeff Banks, if I'm remembering That's correctly. It. That's it. Yep, yep. He was in the GON. Yeah, I always looked up to him. I don't know what he's doing now. I haven't heard he's off the radar, but um, sure. I heard they didn't have that farm anymore. But yeah, he was. That that was kind of when you know QDM was was really getting big and you know some states started implementing some i mean some towns some counties in georgia started implementing you know antler restrictions like the, the farm where our georgia farm is that you have to have four on one side to even kill it i don't care if it's your first deer or your first 
you get two bucks, one deer, two deer, whatever. It's got to have four points on one side. And there are a fair amount of counties that are like that, and some of them even have that plus a, a 15-inch spread. So I think that's helped a little bit. But there's definitely, you know, bigger deer being killed in Georgia now than there ever was. And, and you know, that's easy to say. Now social media is out there, so you see all of them. But it sure seems like that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and speaking speaking of taking farms and turning them into great deer properties, walk us through, you know, you've been through enough of them, you've bought and sold enough of them. Walk us through kind of like what you're looking for, and once you find it, how you go about setting it up. You know, when I'm looking for a farm, most of the stuff, to be honest, you know, I'm looking at stuff that's pretty raw because I'm trying to, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm, I guess, business savvy first in the fact that, you know, I'm trying to buy it as cheap as I can get it. So it's definitely not the farms that are set up with, with stands and food plots already in place. Um, I have been lucky to get a couple of those uh, along the way, but but they're not at the level that we would be happy at, you know. So most of the farms, like I say, we're getting pretty rough. You know, I'm always looking for, you know, I want water, I want you know, some income if it has it. I, I love some ag fields um, and, and then timber. You know, used to, we'd have this conversation five years ago. I'm like, man, I want all the timber I can get, and now I'm just, right. I'm not that way. Give me all the timber, and it makes them deer hard to hunt, hard to kill. Uh, but now, you know, give me some, give me some CRP grass, you know, or yeah. some some diversity because those those deer are going to bed in that CRP just as much as they are the timber. So. You know, that's kind of an evolving thought process, but, it, you know, if we'd had this conversation five years ago, it would have been a lot different than, than, than what it is today. Sure. So once you get settled on a piece and uh, you're getting ready to make a plan, how, how do you set out on that? Do you, you sit back and watch it for a little while to see the deer movement, or do you have a specific plan that you like to put in place? Yeah, I think a lot of people can kind of make a, you know, make the mistake of sitting back and watching it. You know, they can say, hey, we're not, because you hear it all the time, you know, we bought this farm, we're not going to hunt it two or three years, you know, we're not going to shoot any deer off of it. In my opinion, you know, you might be doing a disservice because most of these farms that haven't been hunted or haven't been managed probably may have some age structure on them. It may have some deer that we call bully bucks, you know, may have some bucks that are just, they're ruling the roost, you know, that maybe they're, um, genetics aren't the best, but most importantly, they're running, you know, these up and coming bucks off just because they, 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 they've had it to themselves and, and, and maybe they're giants. That's great. But, but we're boots on the ground. You know, I, I love to walk at this time of year is my favorite time to scout. You know, after the snow's been on the ground a little bit and kind of before it melts, you know, the signs are still fresh. The rubs are still shining like new money. The scrapes are have still show signs of being worked and, you know, the trails, you can you can read them like a map, you know, get up with a drone and figure stuff out. So I love scouting right now. I love walking a new farm right now. And in my opinion, if you're looking to buy a farm or if you're looking to lease a farm, if you look at it right now, it, it's got, it's it looks like it's wide open, especially with snow on the ground. It looks like it is, um, you, you, you know, it, I don't want to say the worst possible shape, but you're looking at it kind of in the worst because it's wet and you can, you can see through all the cover, but if you go on it now and you like the farm, it's probably a dang good farm, you know, because every farm looks thick in the summertime, you know, but right now is kind of where you can see through it, you can get around, you can pick out the trees, but but we're boots on the ground type guys. That's that's what we like to do. That's a that's a great point you brought up, Jeff. I uh, 
I actually walked a bunch of farms before I bought mine, and I walked mine about, I think it was January, and I thought, this is the most sign I've seen. And like you said, all the the natural forbs and stuff that's normally five, six foot tall, the goldenrod, all that was all mm-hmm. down. I'm thinking, oh, man, there's no cover, but, you know, I guess we can put in some switchgrass and this and that. Well, shoot, man, that first summer comes, and it's all six foot tall again, so... Uh, right. That's a great point you brought up, and I don't think we've covered that too much on here. And then I think the second thing I liked, uh, which is a mistake that – I mean, it's not really a mistake that I've made or that people make. Like, I sat back and watched my property for a year before I did anything, and I used to think that was the right thing. But I'm I'm shifting away from that because your habitat management and your, your changes you're going to make are going to change the, the movement that's there before you bought it, right? So – Right. So, like, why are you sitting back and watching? Because you're going to go change it anyways and screw it all up, right? Like, does that make sense? Right. Oh, yeah, it does. And and, and right now with cameras and, and if you can legally put out, you, you know, um, an attractant or, you know, piles of corn, whatever you want to feed, cotton seed, right now you can kind of look under the hood of a new farm if, if you own it. You know, you can say, hey, this is what I got. And with some camera surveys and then just normal, you know, seeing what type of sign is on the place, you can tell if you've got too many deer, and a lot of times most farms haven't been managed not only just for, you know, age class on the bucks, but most people aren't shooting does. You know, shooting does is a lot of work, and, um, you know, so a lot of people aren't really doing that. They're taking what they need for the freezer. They might shoot one for fun every now and then or for a kid or something. Um, but the most part, most farms in decent areas have some pretty high deer densities, and that's that's the first thing you need to work on to to get your farm where it needs to be, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, great, great points of the camera surveys. Now, are you able to throw your camera out on a farm for a month or something like that if you have, like, a, a prospective farm? Have you been able to do that? We have, you know, um, the ones that are probably listed. You know, if I got, like, a, a there's an agent involved, and he's like, hey, man, this guy, you know, if it's a farm, they don't think it's going to move quick. And, and most of the time, you know, farm's always going to be able to bring a little more value if it has some camp from deer history. But True. every farm's not like that. Most people, are, you know, over half the farms have probably not even getting cameras ran on it. Or if they do, the, the, the owner has no access to them. It was somebody that was hunting it or leasing it or whatever. And so a lot of times those agents will do that. But if it's one that's not doing it again, I was like, man, can you put out some cameras or, or will you allow me to, to go on there. My buddy bought a farm in, in Mississippi last year, and uh, he went in there, and he did, I want to say, like a 60-day due diligence. The, the farm like a, it had been a well, it had been for sale a while, and, and during that 60-day due diligence, he went and put out like 10 Spartan cameras. So he said, not only am I checking under the hood, I'm seeing what's on this farm to <laughs> see if I even want to buy it. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. he took it to the next level, and I thought that was very smart. Yeah, I mean, if, if you can do that, um, and then, you know, if you can't... That's a, that's a rare occasion, you right, know, but, right. but he was definitely able to. And, and otherwise, if you can't, you kind of just know you're in a good area, right? Because, I mean, I think that's maybe the number one thing to look for, the area and the access, because you can pretty much change everything else over time. You really can't change the area, though. Absolutely. You can't change the area. You know, I'd always say it. I would rather have the right 40 than the than the right 200 i mean the right 400 you know you kind of always heard that but i've never it seems like every year i appreciate that a little more 
more and more because that truly is right. I would I would almost rather have you know just a, a, a few smaller farms that were in the right neighborhood with the right neighbors than you know a farm ten times or. 20 times that big, you know, that yeah. that just had people on your fence line shooting everything up. Yeah, good good stuff, man, for sure. Okay, so switching gears here, say say you got your farms now. Let's, let's talk about habitat. I know you guys are into food big time. Um, I know Mark Drury is as well. We had him on here, and he stressed a lot about food as well. Is that like a, an Iowa thing or a high deer density thing or – you just have enough room, or, or why do you guys stress so much on food versus cover or, you know, CRP or, or anything like that? Or is it all part of the program? Yeah, it's all part of the program, you know, but at the end of the day, if you got the food, you got the deer. You know, it doesn't matter where you're at. Even if you're in the lower deer density area, if you got the food, you got the deer. And, you know, I kind of feel that way about about any type of food you can you can get, but if you were to ask me, hey, I got one thing to plant, you know, what's it going to be? You know, I am a clover guy through and through, always right. have been. Um, it, it, clover or alfalfa. The, the problem with alfalfa is most of the time it's done more of a farming practice. You know, it's a lot more labor intensive and it's it's more expensive um, to get established, but it is a, a dang good year-round nutrition. But, but clover is even, as far as just, entire forage year round you you can't beat it i mean it's it's affordable uh, you can frost seed you can plant it in the spring in the fall it's uh it's easy to maintain you know you can spray it mow it the whole shebang very browse tolerant grows up the field edges it's just affordable protein i love it yeah that's uh that's i mean you just named all the huge advantages of of clover and the more the more that I realize at the end of the season when some of my brassica plots and oats plots are all mowed down to a, a golf fairway, I'm thinking clover might have been a better choice for some of that, you know? <laughs> right, yeah. And, and they, they really, they almost can't overbrowse it. And, you know, you go look at any of our, our radish plots or our turnip plots, you know, or maximum whatever we had in that plot right now, and it looks like you went in there with a disc. It's just tore up and yeah. not much left with those clover plots, you know. They're digging down through the snow. There's still something there for for them to eat. And and you and the, and yes, I love corn or soybean. You know, if I had my rathers, you know, give me that. Uh, but for one, you can't afford it everywhere. And two, you know, you got to have if you don't have a farming setup or have a farmer that you can trust that the plant it and do it right. I mean, it just can't happen. But a four wheeler, I mean, a a clover. I mean, I can establish the best looking clover plot you ever seen. Just with a four-wheeler and a couple of, you know, a sprayer and a, and a spreader. So it's, it's pretty simple. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. Now, do, what, is there a certain type of clover you use? Is it a blend? Are you annual or perennial? Yes, we we like the mossy oak non-typical clover. That's one. They've had the clover plus, and it's been around for, for years, probably 10, 15 years. I don't know how long that blend's been around. And about three or four years ago, they came out with the non-typical and it was made for the more cold tolerant climates and and that's what we had and and we're you know we're frost seed guys so not right now but here in the next couple of weeks we're going to be you know frost seeding fools every every chance we get and and a lot of our plots even though we may say hey we're going to put that in uh you know greens come this august but we're going ahead and, and putting clover on it i mean we're not 
you know, breaking the bank or nothing like that and, and putting out 100 acres, but we're, we're, you know, strategically putting it in spots that um, even though we may disc up come August, we're, we're going, those plots will be almost established by, you know, late spring, early summer, and there'll be instant forage and protein for the deer throughout the summer. Okay. Okay, very nice. Uh, now, and thus takes browse pressure off our, our bean and beans and, and corn, which is, you know, the name of the game. Touche. And, and I want to get more into the beans and the corn because I know you guys love beans. Um, it, let's go back just a little bit. Now, when you were, if you're buying one of your, your newer farms that you picked up, at, how do you know where to put those food plots in your neck of the woods? Um, you know, you look around, and, and most of your farms in the Midwest will have some type of farming operation on them. If it's not in CRP, it'll have some beans and some, you know, corn or alfalfa or, or you know, just regular hay ground on it. And then so, you know, I, I try to establish my bedding areas, but I found that, you know, I, what I may think is bedding areas or what looks like the bedding areas may be where some of the deer bed, but it, it may not be where the majority of the deer bed. A lot of times they'll they'll throw you for a loop. Um, but figure out, you know, figure out the bed, and then I try to, uh, I look for access. Like, yes, certain fields just scream food plots, but, um, you know, I've, I've taught a seminar in Indiana this week, and, and I told guys, I said, you know, when you go in and if you have a food plot, I'm looking at not just what looks the best, but I'm looking at how I'm going to get to this plot because there's so many bottoms or, or you know, river bottoms or, or plots that can be in the edge of CRP field that if you don't have good access to get in, maybe not just, I'm not just talking about on the road, I'm just talking about walking to it or taking your, your golf cart or bike to it, whatever you may, however you may get there. If you got deer on the ridgetop seeing you or you got to go past their bedding area or you got deer in the, in the CRP field that are going to see you get in, it's, it's not doing you no good. You could have the best food plot in the world with, you know, a, a booner in it every night, but if, if you can't get in there undetected, it's not going to happen. So we do a lot of plot screen um, to, to get these type spots. But, you know, so I, I try to keep my my um, open mind as I can be when I go in and look at these these farms and, and where I'm going to put the new plot and, and say this is what I think it needs to be happening and I think, this, I think this is what's best. I think this will be the best tree. But I do try to be open-minded and say, hey, that may not work and, you know, you have to sometimes, as much as you fall in love with a particular tree or a particular <clears throat> spot you're putting a new food plot, if it don't work, it don't work. So a lot of times you just got to back up and punt, and, and we've had to do that a lot more than 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 you would think. Yeah, sure. that, that's a great point about access. That's a lot of things. A lot of times guys will forget about that and try to force a plot into, like, the easiest spot that they can get it in or save them some time or some money, but then – like you said, it just makes it impossible to get near it if you don't have the access. Right, or force themselves into a tree. I mean, you could, the, the three of us could go get in a, any plot right now, and we can all probably agree, man, that's the tree to kill them at. But the truth of the matter is, can you get to that tree undetected? Now, yes, that, that perfect tree will have its time and the rut when deer are going crazy, and you want to be in the best possible pinch point. But, you know, early season and late season, which, in, in my opinion, is the best time to kill deer on food, bar none, but going to those spots, you may have to be in a tree that's kind of on the edge, you know, kind of hunting from the outside in, and you may not have that optimal 30-yard bow shot. He may have to walk a little closer that particular night, but you're there. You're getting to lay your eyes on him, you know. 
for sure. It just depends on how aggressive you all get. Right. Now, how do you determine the plot size and shape and what varieties go in there? Do you subscribe to, like, having trying to have, like, a central uh, feeding plot that's bigger and then have some smaller kill plots, or what's your approach to that? Sure do, yes. Destination fields is – you can have a destination field. Most deer are going to feed somewhere. I don't care what part of the country you are, you're in. You know, it, it may be in somebody's sod on their, their backyard or something, but they got somewhere where they're – eating the majority of the times but you know kill plots uh quarter to two acres you know when we found that once you get much over that um it gets hard they get so big and you, you know every one of our plots has some edge some some edges and some you know curvature to it none of them are just these square little plots everyone has you know green to grain if, if that's possible or you know a funnel or, or an hourglass funnel of some port some way that you can get in and hunt it on the north and a south wind you know i would love to have not a north and a south wind for every plot but two different wind options for for every plot i think that's ideal scenario it doesn't always work out but you know i love edges i love edges and i know you know mark if you, if you guys had him on he probably talked about the you know the, the green the grain um you know i've always heard that term from him but i love to have a plot that's got Yes, it may have clover in it. Yes, it may have beans or corn in it. But if you've ever noticed, um, even on a – let me back up a little bit. If you're able to get that kill plot next to a, a destination plot, that is mm. dynamite in my opinion because that's probably where he's going that night. But if you can get that, as close as you can get to that kill plot but yet still kind of be on his way to a bedding area – I mean on his way to a destination food source – that is the best one. We've had killed some of our best deer ever in, in fields that, you know, pretty small, but they're leading up. You know, they, they're necking down and going to a destination food source. They're in an inside corner. And um, if you have the opportunity to watch, a you know, a mature deer for an hour or two at night, if he ever happens to come out that early, it doesn't happen much, you know, maybe 20, 30 minutes if you're lucky. But a lot of times they'll come out in clover. They'll eat in clover, but they're going to go to those radishes or they're going to go to those beans. Or if they're going to come out in those beans and or those radishes, they're going to go to that clover. They always seem to kind of mix their diet. I I say that's kind of like you know us going to the pizza but buffet. You know we're going to go up there, we're going to fix a salad, and and then we're going to go you know get some pizza, get some carbs, and then we're probably going to go back over here to the salad bar and, and get something else. You know, so anytime you can, um, if your plot is big enough to and it can even be a couple acres. Maybe it's a it's one acre of, of clover and then a half acre of radishes or something. But if you can ever give those deer a little bit of variety, I think they're going to stay around a little longer in that particular spot. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I've I've seen a lot of examples of that on your show and on some of your YouTube videos of the process. How you guys back those up with a kill plot close to a destination field. It, it, they look like some dynamite setups. They are, yeah, and we're big on edges, you know. Deer love edges. I mean, for one, they love edges where they can get into cover easy. Um, uh, and then, you know, going back to your question about new new farms or, or new plots, you know, if you can ever get that plot as close to the bedding area because the deer is going to – they're not traveling far early season, late season. So if you can get close to that field or you can put that plot where they only got to take, you know, 10 steps and they're in cover, 
that seems to be the plots that they come out in a lot earlier than, than the ones that just are, are next to wide open timber or something like that. Sure. And getting back to the green, the grain, can you just go into detail about that for our listeners, explain what that is again for them? You know, um, on the clover, you know, a lot of times we'll, we'll put that around our field edges. Because uh, clover, you know, it grows all the way up. A lot of times you go in a bean field or a corn field and you can look down that drip edge or, you know, where that those overhanging branches are on those trees. And that, that's where it's stopping. That's where the grain quits, decides to quit growing. There's just too much competition with shade. There's too much competition with the tree roots. But if you plant a clover field, you don't lose those edges. It, it grows almost right up to the, not to the base of the trees, but pretty dang close. And you start figuring that in on all your plots on your farm. You could have three, you know, one-acre plots. And, and, I mean, you're starting to talk about some, some true forage that you're adding. But if you can put that on the edge of a bean field or the edge of a corn field, kind of where you think he's going to come out, he's just going to stop there. He's going to maybe give you that extra, you know, one or two minutes that you need to, to give you a little time to, to hunt. But I've seen so many deer just on those edges that where green to grain does touch, where, you know, clover borders sand and beans or something. If you, if you ever have that opportunity to do something like that, there will be a cattle trail, it looks like, between the, the two plots, even if you butt them up together, because the deer are taking the path of least resistance. They don't want to walk through those beans, but they're walking down that line, and we feel deer after deer, you know, take a bite of clover or take a bite of radishes. Then he's taking a bite of beans. And so they're just they're just getting a little bit of each, and they're, you know, they don't always all do that, but, you know, deer, they got personalities, taste buds, just like us. They like they like variety, you know. They like they like to mix it up. So, Jeff, if you have a situation where you have some beans and you have a little staging area and then you have cover and you're going to hunt the staging area in between the two and you're talking, you know, maybe a, a more pressured area like, like a Michigan or, or something – I want to get your thoughts on this. Would you try to carve in a food plot in that staging area if it's already being used and tore up by bucks? Right now, it's, I have this, this lease, and it's in my head here. There's just a little maybe 50-yard patch of kind of a swale, low ground, that the farmer couldn't get any beans in because it's too wet. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. It, it grew up into into some... So, I don't know, five, six-year-old brush now. It's got some good trees in there, and they are all rubbed up. And then on the back side of that, it's a thick cover. Um, would, you, yeah. would you try to get any food in between the beans in that swale at all, or would you just leave it? Man, you know, if they're naturally coming that way, part of me says, you know, don't mess with it. But the other part of me is like, man, if you put that in clover, those deer that are coming through Dynamite. that field – yeah, uh, you know, an hour after dark. Now they're going to be here an hour before dark because it's it's right there where um, you know they can they can easily get back in their bedding area. Well, if it's wet, you know, about the only thing that's going to grow is clover. Yep. And you know, if your farmer can't get to it, and you don't have, and if it's like you said, fifty foot wide or fifty yards wide, whatever you said, um, that's clover's really about your only option. Um, just because everything else is just sounds like it's going to have too much competition from the trees, so. It, you know, in my mind's eye, what you just described, that screams clover. You know, I would be out there in the next three or four weeks with a 
with a sack of it and, uh, <laughs> you, you know, getting ready to frost seed it with, with a hand spreader or something. And, you know, wh- what do you got to lose? You know, maybe, you know, $10, $20 bag of seed. Um, but if it, if it comes up, great. If it don't, you know, maybe you'll try again come springtime. Good point, man. Thanks. Good point. No problem. Yeah, definitely. Uh, getting back to the salad bar analogy, I think that's important. That's one thing Jared and I stress to our listeners all the time is if you have the room and the ability to give them as much variety as you can, that's that's real important. Because I've heard you talk about that before, about seeing certain bucks sort of only being interested in soybeans and walking past everything else and just eating those. And that's pretty interesting that when I've heard you say that. Yeah, some deer, you know, going back to us humans, you know, we all, you know, I like my favorite candy bar is, uh, you know, a Snickers bar or something with peanut butter. And then, you know, my dad, he's like, you know, I don't, I don't want to eat peanut butter. So maybe peanut butter is, you know, beans for, for deer. You hope they all eat beans, you know. That seems to be what, you know, really starts to put their the protein on them in the summertime, but they don't. I mean, you know, the most, probably the most famous deer, I guess, if that'd be the word for him, that we've ever had to hunt, Goliath, you know, had we, we seem like all conversations lead back to Goliath at one point, but, <laughs> but because the big one yeah. got away, he's the one we always talk about. But, um, <laughs> you know, he was, you know, in the summertime, I'm going around, you know, I'm running inventory, and I've always said there's not a deer I can't get a picture of. I don't care if you put me in the most high-pressured area, but I can put something out there that will get a picture of that deer. I'll get him going through a gap. I'll get him coming to, a, you know, a pile of big time or a mineral site. I'll get a picture of that sucker. But Goliath is one that I not not once. And now, granted, he didn't live entirely on us. He went back and forth to us and the neighbor. But he was one of those that not not once ever came to a pile. I got three pictures of him. I want to say there are two pictures of him entirely between ages six and nine. You know, the best of our uh, estimate guesses. But and one time was on us, but both times was on a scrape. He would not come to a, a pile of that and. To my knowledge, our neighbor where he lived, he never got a picture of him. And our neighbor, he was doing like, you know, trough feeders and stuff in the summertime, feeding his deer, alfalfa bells or whatever. And he never got a picture of him doing that. And, you know, when my dad actually encountered him, um, you know, it was in the bean field. And, and him and uh, an old friend of his up there was like, hey, man, you need to need to be in that bean field. That's what Goliath likes. And it was kind of a joke. You know, he don't like corn. He just likes beans and, and sure enough we have no knowledge of him whatsoever you know eating anything but beans I, of course he did you know we don't have a camera or gopro on his head right. going around but <laughs> he was one of those that beans was his thing and it's easy to use him you know just because he was the biggest deer we've ever had to hunt but but it, it it's an interesting point you know that's just what he was and you know you'd have harvested cornfields you know, when the farmer just got done right next to it or in this same field where he ended up, you know, hitting him high at, and, and not once did we ever get a picture or see him in there. And, there's, you know, there'd be corn all on the ground the first few days and after it gets cut. So I don't know. It was just one of those situations where he was he was an oddball. And, and I'm sure if we examine or, if you know, if we looked at every deer like that, we'd figure out stuff they liked better than the others. But the ones that we've concentrated on over the last few years, we've always been able to get their picture, you know, like I say, on a mineral side or, or on a, uh, you know, a, a pile of big time or something like that in the last few years. But 
Not that dude. Yeah, it never ceases to amaze me that the personality traits between from deer to deer, kind of like people, it's it's incredible to watch. Yeah, it's easy just to assume, hey, they're all the same, you know, or all deer like this, you know. Let's go put this out. They'll, they'll eat it, or all deer will be in this alfalfa field come summertime. And, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of humans say, you know, I got some buddies that he can't eat a certain food. He's like, man, that just tastes so bitter to me. That tastes terrible. And I can't help but think that's like the same for a deer too. They're not gonna, they're not gonna eat some if it tastes bad to them. For sure. Okay, Jeff. So we did our due diligence. We looked under the hood. We bought the right farm. We got the food in the right place. We got mature bucks hanging around. One of our biggest questions we get from our listeners is they get everything set up. They're getting pictures of deer, good deer, and when it comes time to hunt them, they disappear. What what can we do? to keep those deer on our farms, especially the mature bucks, and how do we maintain that through the whole hunting season? Well, you know, I, I get that question a lot, too. I get pictures that or guys will send me this picture, and I, they'll say, man, this I'm only getting this picture's deer at night. And and then I said, well, what time of night? And you'll look, and they'll send it. One of them's at, you know, at, at 11.30, the other one's at 2 in the morning, midnight. And I was like, well, I hate to bring it to you, but that deer is probably not living on you. Now, it doesn't mean you can't get lucky on the right cold front or, or in the rut, but, you know, not a lot of deer are just, you know, they're going to come and go with the wind. That's just what happens. But if I had one thing to tell you what will keep deer on your property, if you got the food already there and if you got the cover um, to, to keep up with the, the food that will that'll match the deer density that you are trying to create or, or, or create on accident by planting a lot of food is intrusion. I mean, I can't overstate intrusion, stress. That's what, you know, I feel like takes our farms to the next level. Just because, and we're fortunate to be able to have, you know, a couple different leases, a couple different farms right here around our house to be able to hunt where we can spread out. And at the end of the day, it's just me and my dad. Yeah, we got our, we're taking our camera guys in the woods and, you know, double the scent, double the, double the movement and all that. But, you know, yes, my, my sister may draw a tag. We may have a buddy that will draw a tag or something like that. But as far as just who's hunting it you know, three or four days out of the week, it's just going to be me and my dad. And, and the ways we're getting in there, we're, we're never, you know, hunting anything on, on the wrong wind. We're not even checking cameras on the wrong wind. We, we take that to another level. And, and right now, you know, we're using four-wheelers to pick sheds up, side, you know, a side-by-side maybe here or there, a gator. But as far as getting to the stand or going checking cameras, there's no way in the world are we using a, a, a four-wheeler or something that's going to make any type of noise, you know, from August to January. We're just not doing it. We're going in, you know, with with our old hunt bee that we won on green season, you know, 10 years ago. Or we got Toyota trucks that can just about go anywhere a four-wheeler can go. But they're in closed cabs. You know, they're not leaving any scent. Nothing's blowing out. The windows are rolled up and we're hopping out, checking cams, or hanging a stand, and we're getting right back in there. And those things are, you know, they're as quiet as, as any truck on the market. And that's what we consider our, our farm trucks, you know. I mean, and, and that's, that's I know, taking it to the next level. I know everybody's not that fortunate um, to to, um, to be able to not just hop on the floor or whatever and go in there. But, you know, we don't have those e-bikes, but I would love to. That's my goal is to have a couple of those this year because, you know, when I speak about intrusion, those those are kind of a couple of things that not only checking cams but getting to your stand. I mean, if you got to go by 
you know, an area that is going to blow your skin in there for the span of 100 yards walking. That may take you, you know, three or four minutes to walk. I mean, you could buzz by it in high gear on that bike in, you know, 20 seconds. So, you know, that's that's just next level stuff that, you know, you sit around and think about. It's ideal scenario stuff, but but intrusion or stress on deer is stress, in my opinion, is the number one factor that, you know, affects antler growth and, um, you know, when they're in the summertime, that's why these dang high fence deer get so big. They they have zero stress, you know. They don't have to worry about food. They don't have to worry about nobody trying to kill them or chase them or coyotes trying to eat their tails. You just They're just dealing with living and putting their horns on their head. But stress and intrusion, man, you just got to minimize it. You got to be smart about it, and, and you kind of, you got to be anal about it. Uh, anal to the fact that you'll tell your, your buddy, no, you, you can't go take your, um, you know, take your four-wheeler in there this weekend and ride trails and, you know, three weeks before hunting season because I'm kind of, kind of wanting to hunt in there, you know, so. For sure. It's, but there's places to do that, you know, so. Right. But if it's all, if that's all you got and you can't control what kind of people get in there, you gotta, gotta make the, your best, you know, your best situation, but in proverbial ideal scenario form that you listed, that's, that's what I'm going to tell you. So is there certain situations, time of the year, or weather patterns that you might get a little more aggressive and kind of break away from that, staying out of there? Is, are there certain things that you want to take advantage of? Yes, there's the rut. You know, when the rut comes, you know, there's no holds bars. My dad, he's a lot more aggressive than me. You know, at the end of the day, he's killed bigger deer than me, so you can't argue with that. But um, <laughs> he'll always push that. Yeah, yeah, he'll always push that. Uh, he'll push that issue a little more. I'm like, Dad, you going in there on that wind? He's like, Heck yeah, son! I'm, I'm loading up my nose jammer and I'm going to do it. And I got to drag a buck out, you know. But but as you get towards that, and I think your guys, I don't know about PA, but Michigan, you're kind of dealing with that, you know, that November rut that that we deal with and in the Midwest there, and um, you get that, that really good cold front late October, you know, that kicks it off for us. And pretty much from there till Thanksgiving, I'll say, you know, yes, you want the ideal situ- ideal win and stuff like that every time you hunt, but, you know, you can get away with so much more when those bucks are letting their guard down, you know. All year long, survival is their number one thing on their mind, survival and eating, and now it's, you know, breeding does. Um, you know, getting after it for the, the one month out of the year, they can do that. So you can just, you can get away with it so much more, in my opinion. And that's, that's when we just, we get in and get aggressive. Now, that being said, we're not taking, you know, we're not taking our, our super loud side by side to the, to the stand or anything like that. We're, we're still, access is still, um, cautious with that. But as far as where, where we're going to hunt or, or, you know, when we're going to hunt, we're going after them. Now, what about habitat improvement-wise? Is there anything that you guys do to hold mature bucks? Do you do any improvements, uh, sanctuaries, creating other bedding areas, anything like that? Yeah, every farm has a sanctuary. I don't care if it's a 20-acre a farm we're hunting or, it, you know, it's a 200-acre farm or a 1,000-acre farm. We're you got to give them a sanctuary. It, it may be a couple acres in the middle of the property. It might be 200 acres, you know, but you always got to give them something that you're only really penetrating, you know, in this time of year and when you're going in there to get shed. Besides that, 
you know, that's that's kind of one of our main goals. Um, we don't have a, a a lot more than that. Now, Jeff, you mentioned something a few minutes ago about intrusion, and then kind of back to the sanctuary conversation. Uh, we talk about uh, access and, and intrusion all the time as well. I think, like you said, is, is the number one thing. Um, I guess I want to make a, a point for the listeners. If, if you're hunting a place that has intrusion, where you maybe do have another guy you share the property with or or this and that, I mean, to your point about the sanctuary, it could be a little two-acre spot, could be a ditch, could be next to the parking lot. I mean, I think it would be important to try to find those places where these other people you're dealing with or whatever's causing the stress, wherever that isn't at is where you want to be. I mean, is it as simple as that? Right. Yeah, yeah, it can be, you know, and, and, and even me and my dad. I mean, he's my dad, and, you know, we butt heads on everything in life. But when it comes to deer hunting, <laughs> we butted a lot, too. You know, well, well, no, I thought this was our sanctuary. I thought we weren't hunting that on this wind, you know. So we we go at it a little bit. So we deal on those same type things just like you would with any hunting buddy. And we probably, you know, are even worse about that because we're not, we're not worried about hurting each other's feelings. We're, we're just going to do it when, you know, if it's your buddy or – you know, somebody you're splitting the lease with, you know, you're, oh, man, you, you're not wanting to damage that relationship. But we're like, right. you know, oh, well, I don't want to get over it. <laughs> yeah. You know, so it's, it's a little different there. But, yeah, sanctuary can be, it can be anywhere, man. It can be a food plot. It can be, you know, typically, though, our sanctuaries are, are somewhere that we think the deer are bedded. That that way, um, you know, and I don't want to say the majority of our deer are bedded because we don't have that at all, but it's just, you know, a little wood lot or something that we just don't want to go disturb and run run the deer on to our neighbor's property where, you know, they may never come back. No, awesome stuff. Awesome stuff. I uh, I want to move on to this next question here. If you can, uh, and maybe you already covered it with intrusion, but maybe you have a, another thing you could add. Your number one piece of habitat advice and it could be hunting device if you don't have habitat advice uh that, that you would recommend you know like what's your what's your go-to for the the general masses of, of our listeners out there um you know i hate to say it again but it but it's intrusion because i really believe that so much you know i always have and and you can look at no problem any farm that you have a, have a, a way to go and you know like i said quiet vehicles and just just being anal about it you know even if it's, you know, just checking a cam and don't do it unless the, the wind's right. And, and don't go in there and check those cams, you know, three or four times a week unless you're walking by it hunting to your stand. You know, that's why, you know, um, trail cameras, not only have they changed the game of hunting, but now with cellular trail cameras, I'm, I'm talking about now we're talking, oh yeah, you know, next level type stuff. So cellular trail cameras are one of the few devices other than a golf cart or something getting into your stand that can truly eliminate intrusion, that can truly, you know, eliminate human presence in the deer woods, you know, and you know, we got some of them that, and we can, we don't run all cell cams, you know, we're running half of our cams are probably cell cams, but those cell cams are in those areas that we don't want to go in, you know, so they're, they're from our core out, you know, the ones that you can just, go through a gate and walk 50 yards down a logging road. Those are our, our regular cams, but our cell cams are strategically placed. Well, not only where we want to know 
the most recent, you know, deer activity, of course, but, but the ones that, that, you know, we don't want to go in there and check. And if we got one in the middle of our timber, you know, we'll, we'll take it a step further. We'll go in there and put a solar pack or, or you know, put a, a battery pack and hardwire it to it. Um, you know, some of these solar packs we've had out since August, and those jokers are still taking picks. And, you know, and that, that's awesome, but, you know, the first thought is, man, that saved me a ton of money on lithium batteries this year. But the truth of the matter is, I didn't have to go in there and touch it all year. Right. You know, I, those deer were undisturbed. It was in one of my best areas on one of my best trails, and I knew what was going through there at all times, and I didn't have to go in there and screw with it. No, those are those are ridiculously awesome. I mean, especially if you had a lease or property out of state or within, you know, a couple hours away. Oh, yeah, definitely that. I mean, like, like how do you know when to leave for Illinois, you know? I'm sure you start getting some pictures on your phone, and you're like, it's time to go. Let's go, you know? Yeah. Yeah, all those nighttime pictures, next thing you know, it's like a, a light switch literally flips. And it's like, okay, I had five deer pictures last night. Well, tonight, those five five same bucks were all in, you know, different fields. And they I may all, all not have been shooters, but we had but mature, I mean, we had deer activity in daylight. And, right. and you know, the, the only states we can bait that we hunt a lot, well, we can now in Georgia, but was Kansas, too. And so we We'd run those on our, our, our feeders, and, you know, you can see when the deer are coming, they're eating those, those feeders are kind of like their destination food source or a food plot in Kansas because it's like Texas where we're at. It's so arid. You can't really get anything to grow. But you'll know exactly when that daylight activity is if you have, you know, the cell cameras. And, you know, used to, you know, they were they were tough, and, you know, a lot of people didn't have them figured out. Yeah, and the technology goofy. was so yeah. new, like any technology when it first came out. You were, yeah. you were When you bought one, you were the guinea pig for a couple of years. But now they got that dialed in, and a lot of those cameras, cellular cameras, are, are fairly affordable. So a lot of them are about the price that, you know, we were paying for regular cameras a few years ago. So it's, sure. it, if anything's changing the game in the hunting world, it's cellular trail cameras. Yeah, that that is a huge advantage. I mean, I used to hunt a lease down in southern Ohio, which is about four and a half hours from where I'm at, and we didn't get in the car till uh, till we got daylight pictures at least more than one day in a row. And once we got that second right. picture, it was like we all right, we'll be there tomorrow or this afternoon or, or whatever it needs to be. And uh, I mean, it, it works out. I mean, it really is a, a game changer, like you said. Yeah, just think about all the the time and money it's it's saving you and gas and everything else, but nothing else. It's saving you know your time is so valuable, especially you got only a couple of days a week to hunt and you're not running back and forth farm to farm checking cams. You're you're able to spend that time in a tree and in a spot where you know hopefully those cameras have have told you a, a deer's in the area. Jeff, you mentioned feeders. I I noticed on one of the videos I was watching, you guys use some open feed trough type feeders. Now, we can't use any type of feed in Pennsylvania, but on my property in Ohio, I have to like get the most critter-proof feeder I could possibly get. Otherwise, the deer won't get anything. Do you have any trouble oh, keeping them out? The raccoons. Hand? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, if you've seen a trough feeder, yes, we have a few in Iowa, not near as many as we used to. Um, we kind of went more to the cylinder feeders, and, you know, Redneck makes a good one. Boss Buck makes a really good one. In Georgia, we don't have near the, um, you, you know, near the animals getting in there and, and trying to, to do all that. And, and 
yes, the, we just figure that the coons are going to eat so many. But the problem is they get in there and they're like living in the, the feeder and they're pooping. And, then, you know, and I'm no biologist or by any means, but I'm like, gosh, that cannot be good for the health of the deer <laughs> to be eating where a, a, poon, a, a coon is just pooped all over it. You know, so I always think about that. And, you know, we caught 60 coons um, in foothold traps, or, or my dad did mainly, um, the last couple of weeks of trapping season or the last month of trapping season. And, and we try to, to wear them things out the best we can because not only are they, they eating your feet up when you when you can put it out, but um, when you're trying to get those summer pictures, you know, I think those – those jokers are stressing the deer out, and you know, just imagine trying to eat, and you got something just buzzing all around your head and everything, and your peripherals. So, uh, you For know, sure. golly, I mean, there was a time when I, you know, I love trapping and hunting coons, but but now, I mean, I I wish we could just uh, eliminate them at least for a few months out of the year. No question. And uh, guys are getting ready to start putting minerals out. You guys use minerals, and uh, what time of year do you start putting them out, and where do you like to put them? Yeah, we started putting ours out a couple of weeks ago. You know, we were it just depended on the size of the farm, but we try to have a, a mineral site every every seventy five to hundred acres. Um, we we typically will try to put anywhere from from ten to twenty bags, ten to twenty pounds in each mineral hole and not every mineral hole is just going to take and be the best in the world but we try to put them out in um every month that way to keep it fresh keep the deer coming because you know there's there's a lot of good products on the market uh, today we're using that new nitro that the stuff big time came out with there's a lot of a lot of good products on the market that uh that can help deer and and, and in my opinion i'm not going to say you know yes there there is an, an important as food plots but a mineral program is something that was one of the first steps of, of QDMA or QDM, you know, that, that people started years ago. Well, it may have just been a salt block or it may have been some salt, but, you know, they had what, you know, they thought that was, they were, everybody, we all thought we were giving the deer something. And then they started adding, you know, uh, phosphorus or calcium or, or whatever, whatever it was to it. And, um, it, it's one of the longer standing, uh, practices that I know we've been doing and, you know, pretty much every farm, if it's legal, um, if we can do it, we're we're putting out minerals. Yeah, at least for even camera inventory. I mean, this that's why I liked it the best too. Let alone from the, oh yeah the antler growth. I mean, just getting your deer in one spot, letting letting you know they survived the season. I mean, it's so helpful. But we can't do it here anymore in Michigan. So missing out. No, so you can't do it in Michigan or PA, huh? No, sir. We uh. Wow. We were on the CWD. Is that called some CWD? Now. Yes, yeah. sir. Yes, sir. And uh, you know, it's it's still the jury's out with uh, scientific proof on what transmits the disease. Transmits the disease, but uh, you know that that has been outlawed right away, along with baiting. So, no feeding wow. or baiting, yep. and no minerals. Uh, outlawed right off the bat. So. Yeah. Well, I have my opinions on all that, but we won't get into that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I think I know where you're going with that. <laughs> uh, so I have a, a question I like to ask. Um, you, you'd be surprised the kind of answers we get out of it, to be honest with you. I, I want to know what your your favorite tree is, uh, whether it's one you planted, whether it's one you hunted out of, whether it's one you just like, and, and, and why. I, I mean, it could be 
like I said, for for habitat, could be uh, for for covering the tree, could be a good story. You, you just love that tree. What do you have in mind for your favorite tree, Jeff? Well, I'd probably have two of them. I mean, my first thought is for sure a sawtooth oak, and that's an invasive tree, you know, and it and it's a tree that we've only had luck growing in the south. Um, you know, my other one would be a persimmon tree, and that's you know we have them in Illinois, we have them in Georgia. Two biggest bow bucks I've ever killed in my life in Georgia. Um, or I'm sorry, my three biggest bow bucks I've ever killed in Georgia have all been over persimmon trees. So, uh, one of them was natural. The other two was ones we planted. And when we bought our, our Georgia farm, which we call our, our family farm back in 99, um, my dad, me and him, we went, went around and we had the whole family involved. And we just started planting these orchards of sawtooth oaks. That was hot then. It was a lot now. Chestnut trees are hot. But those sawtooth acorns, they'll hit about three out of every four years. You know, granted, you don't get a late frost. And when those things hit, there is, I've never seen anything that remotely compares to those two weeks when those trees are falling. I mean, it's unbelievable. You could have the biggest bait pile in the world. They'd walk right through it. They'd walk through the freshest beans, the freshest corn. They're going to those sawtooths. And, and wow. now they've actually gotten big enough where we can with the hunt out of them, but, you know, yes, I love white oaks, red oaks, black oaks, the whole shebang, but if I'm having to pick one tree, I can't live without. It's going to be, probably going to be the sawtooth oak. Nice, man. Yeah, we, we haven't had that answer yet, so that's awesome. <laughs> and we've had not a whole lot of luck trying to, to grow those in the in Iowa, southern Iowa here. Jeff, we appreciate you coming on, and I want to be respectful of your time, give you a chance to tell the listeners where to catch up with you. But I just wanted to ask you on uh, that Samson buck, how far was he from the stand when you guys found him? Samson, oh, the one my, dear, my dad shot last year? Yeah, and then he found it later on in the season? Yes. Well, from where he shot that deer, he was probably man. I, those these are about a year old in my memory. These answers and probably a half to three quarters of a mile. Now that being said, from that stand that my dad was sitting in with his brother, that deer was literally in the ditch right below it. You know, thirty forty yards in the timber. And what was so crazy is a deer, a shed buck with a very similar hole or, or wound, whatever you want to call it came out of that bottom, and, and when my, my uncle filled his buck tag, we went in there and looked, thinking we were going to find his shed, and we ended up finding the deer. So that was kind of huh, divine intervention or whatever you want to call it. Yes, sir. But he hit that deer, you know, kind of high shoulder, and not dead in the shoulder. He did get some lungs, no doubt about it. But, you know, that deer, where we trailed him, that the mile we trailed him, he went back the complete opposite direction. So if I was a betting man, I would say that that deer probably lived a, a few days before he died. He got back over there and died down in that creek, um, definitely from the from the arrow wound because he lost a lot of blood that day. But we probably pushed him a little bit when we went in trailing him. We were finding good blood, and, it, you know, we thought we had lung blood. So we probably pushed him a little bit and um, – you know, it was probably one of those deals where he went and he licked his wounds, healed up for a day or two, and then, you know, it did take him 36 hours to die. It did take him, you know, uh, 
five days. Who knows, you know, but I guess we'll never know. But he he definitely died from from that shot. It was just um, unfortunate we didn't find him then because, I mean, that's, I mean, gosh, it's probably the, the biggest typical we'll, we'll ever have to hunt, you know. Heck of a buck, heck of a story. Yeah, it was crazy that one stepped out that had a wound in the, in the similar spot, but great that you guys got closure on it. That that helps a lot, even though it doesn't make up for not getting them, but that was great. Right, yeah, and that was, all that happened, all that, all that stuff we just talked about happened on about 350 acre farm. Now, he did go over in our neighbors, and, and thankfully he let us go over there and, and look for it after the shot, but I mean, all that was on a 350 acre farm, so he, he probably, from where he shot to where we found him, it was probably, yeah, three quarters of a mile. For sure. Yeah, and you guys do a heck of a job. I, I want to commend you for the great job on the show, combining the cinematography with the storytelling and bringing the family in. I, I just think it's, it's like everything that anybody could want in the show, and just wanted to tell you guys you do a great job and, and appreciate you putting that out for everybody. Well, yeah, thanks, guys. That's why we do it. You know, we do it. Thankfully, it's not what we have to do to make a living. It's what we do for fun. It's a hobby. And the day it becomes a job is the day that we'll quit hauling cameras through the woods. But I appreciate it. That means a lot. Yeah, we uh, we all know how much fun hauling those cameras around is. I don't think our cameras that we haul are maybe as big as, as the ones you guys do. But that it sure does take dedication and, you know, along with the uh, the story and, and having to film every shot on your on your shot list or whatever the technical term for that is. I mean, you guys, you're, it's, it's intentional. You can tell it's intentional that you're trying to make a, a good show, and uh, it, it came out great, man. Nice job with that. Thank you. And, and we want to, you know, be respectful of your time. And so how can everybody find you? What's your social media? Uh, so we can all look you up. Yeah, look us up. We are obviously we're on the Sportsman's Channel at 8 p.m. on Sunday nights. That's our main time. Three other times throughout the week. And I haven't really put this out there publicly, but we are moving to the Outdoor Channel 7 p.m. Thursday nights. That will be our new airtime come third and fourth quarter of this year. And obviously YouTube, look us up. We're you know we're adding a lot more content to that every week. Uh, social media, you got Instagram. Twitter, Facebook, I manage all those sites. So, you got a question? Hit me up. Be happy to talk to you. Well, hey Jeff, uh, congratulations on moving on up to the Outdoor Channel. You guys deserve it, uh, and thanks so much for coming on tonight. I think it's going to be a great episode for our listeners. Jeff, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Really had an awesome discussion with you, Brian, and I really do appreciate you coming on. I uh, look forward to keeping in touch with you, and good luck this shed season and turkey season. Guys, I want to thank you, the listeners, for coming back once again. This is our 75th episode, and we are jacked that you're still here. Thank you very much. Let us know what you think. Leave us a great review on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, wherever you listen to the show. Leave us a great review, and let me know. I'll get you a free decal. So thanks so much. All of our gear, new hats, just came out with T-shirts. Everything is on HabitatPodcast.com. There's a link in the show notes that you're listening to right now. You can scroll down and find the link to the website. Be sure to visit us there and see what's new is going on all the time. I'd like to thank our sponsors. We have Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, The Habitat Hook, Morse Nursery, Packer Max Call to Packers, Killer Food Plots, The HuntWise App, and 5-2 Outdoors. Thank you all for supporting us. We couldn't do it without you, and we uh, 
Really wish you guys all good luck this spring. Get out in the woods. Be safe. Wear your helmet and chaps, and uh, you know, enjoy your woods, guys. Another great episode coming up soon, so stay tuned in as we become better habitat managers.